With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Every evening we listen to them talk on radio. Don't you listen to the radio? One of these nights. Tonight. All right, let's hear it. Where's the radio? One of these J-talking nights. J-talking with Bradley J. You're going to call up Bradley J now. Hello? Mm, and tell him why you're right. Hello? Who is calling? Can you hear me? Now everybody's calling. The fever is high. This is now your chance to discourse and more. Thank you. Trying to have a conversation. Yeah, Jay's got his problems and he's got desires. But you got a few of your own. WBZ News Radio 1030. It's WBZ. We continue with Tim Tate, author of Hitler's Secret Army, A Hidden History of Spies, Saboteurs, and Traitors. And I love spy stuff, and I love I love World War II stuff. 617-254-1030 is our number if you would like to talk on that topic. Hitler's Secret Army, Hidden History of Spies, Saboteurs, and Traitors. Tim Tate, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? Great. Thanks for, uh, you know getting in touch with us this is excellent the book is great looks good reads reads well glad to have you here so let me ask you first about the fifth column what is the fifth column it's a it's a term that basically means spies undercover traitors people with inside your own country or your own organization who are secretly working for your enemy and that's what was happening in britain in world war ii there were several hundred many, several hundred, uh, British fascists who were pro-Nazi and who were secretly working on behalf of Hitler and trying to help Germany win the Second World War. So their motivation was political in that they were pro-fascism? Yeah, they were ardent fascists, pro-Nazi fascists, not just garden variety fascists. These people believed firmly in Hitler and in what he was doing. And almost all of them were vehement and violent anti-Semites as well. About how many of them were there? We're talking mostly in Britain, right? Yeah, this is in Britain, though, in the U.S., um, with whom some of these people interacted. There were also spy networks being set up by the Germans. And so the book talks about some of the spy networks which were set up uh, in and around the East Coast, Boston, New York, Washington, D.C., and what they were up to. In Britain, we're talking probably four or 500 active individuals. And what I came across, and I should say that all of this stems from declassified MI5, security service files, which have been released over the past few years. What I came across was three plots to launch a fascist coup, to put violent fascists on the streets to overthrow the British government in the darkest days of World War II um, on behalf of the Germans. But how many of these fascist spies can, were there, given your best estimate? 
Sorry, how many were there? Mm. There were several hundred of these. Some of them were committing espionage. Some of them were committing sabotage. Some of them were conducting negotiations ostensibly on behalf of Britain, but actually on behalf of themselves with the Third Reich. In terms of actual spies, there were probably a hardcore of 100, 150. Oh, is it? So that's enough to foment, enough unrest to really overturn the British government? Yeah, what the documents which I found, these declassified security service documents show, is that MI5, the security service, infiltrated three coup plots, three separate but overlapping plots by very well-connected British fascists who had set up organizations which were going to overthrow the British government violently with arms. One of them was, uh, was trying to import thousands of rifles and ammunition just as soon as German troops landed on British shores. These were serious plots. These were serious plotters. And had they succeeded, the history, history books would have been very different. So a lot of these were caught, a lot of these folks were caught too. The bulk of our talk will be to actually go into the details of these spies and spy networks. But before we get to that point, uh, a lot of them were caught. How did they get caught? And were any of them turned? Probably not if they're really true fascist uh, zealots. They probably weren't turned into double agents. But how many were caught? How did they get caught? Well, there were, there were around 70 criminal prosecutions. All, almost all of those were conducted in secret, and it's only later that we found out about them. But there were 70 criminal, or thereabouts, criminal prosecutions. Four of those people were sentenced to death. Two of them were actually executed. Beyond them, there were several hundred, it's hard to get an exact figure because not all the documents have been released, several hundred of these people who were interned under wartime legislation, Britain interned people without trial if they were suspected of having sympathy with or trying to help the enemy. And there were hundreds of those. They were locked up for, most, for the most part for the duration of the war and kept in prison and then released quietly towards the end or at the end of the war. How did they get caught? By and large, by the efforts of the security service MI5, and that's our equivalent of your FBI. It belatedly woke up to the threat in, of British fascists in the late 30s, and it began inserting its own undercover agents into the organizations. And they sent back reports of what these people were up to which are what, which are the reports that I found in the declassified files? That is interesting. Now, the files were declassified. What starting in two thousand six? Two thousand. Um, two thousand. If you think about that for a start, these files date back to the late nineteen thirties, early nineteen forties, and it takes sixty something years before they see the light of day. When they're declassified, they're sent to our national archives very quietly and in a completely haphazard fashion. There's no rhyme or reason to how they've been released. And they continued to be released between 2000 and 2018. In fact, last year was the last, the last set that was released. They're not announced. The, the arrival of these files isn't announced. And it's only if you go hunting for them that you actually find them. And beyond them, there are hundreds literally hundreds 
more files, which we know existed because we have the reference numbers from these files, which have never been declassified and in which, in many cases, have been destroyed. Did you decide to write the book because of the release of the files, or was that a happy coincidence? You wanted to write this book, and, and no, they I had saw, been. I saw a brief news story about an extraordinary MI5 sting operation, which was conducted during the war on British fascists. And what it did was it, it established one of its officers. It set him up as a notional Gestapo agent, and he contacted... British fascists who appeared to be disloyal and got them to trust him as a supposed Gestapo agent. And I thought, well, this is an interesting story. I'll have a look. I got those files and thought, well, maybe there's something in here. Maybe there's a book. But the more I pulled, the more files I got hold of, one led me to another to another. And after a year of pulling and copying and finding all these files, I realized that it was an extraordinarily bigger story. It's a story that lasts over a period of 10, 15 years, and it speaks to so many serious issues, not just then, but actually which have resonance today in how we deal with Islamic terrorism and indeed Islamophobia. We're speaking with Tim Tate, author of Hitler's Secret Army. I think it's a book that is right in the wheelhouse for a lot of you. Hitler's Secret Army, A Hidden History of Spies, Saboteurs, and Traitors. One question before a break. Why the insistence on secrecy in the trials, and why the sort of uh, releasing of the the files in unnoticeable dribs and drabs? Uh, I wish I could answer both of those questions. Britain has this ridiculous addiction to secrecy. British governments don't like scrutiny. They don't like files being released. And by and large, they try and be as obstructive as possible. There has never been an explanation for the secrecy surrounding this. And no matter how much I ask and others ask, no one will ever give us an explanation. It just is. Why did they release them at all? You don't have an equivalent of a Freedom of Information Act, do you? Yes, we do. We have a a FOIA. Um, Unfortunately, it's rather less appealingly written than your one. Um, In the U.S., as I'm sure you and your listeners know, you can FOIA the CIA or the FBI. Both are equivalents, MI5 and MI6. Mm -mm. They're off limits. You can't FOIA them. And you can't FOIA many police documents either in this country. Why did they release the files at all? That's a very good question. And again, the secrecy and the obscurity of our bureaucracy here in Britain is such that it's impossible to get an answer. I challenged MI5 over its failure to release key files and said, where are these? And the most I get is, or got, is a a two-line email saying, well, we've released what we're going to release and it's up to us and that's what you get. Okay. Can you uh, give us a little bit of detail on... Or some stories about on your favorite networks or individual spies. Yeah. Everyone who's interested in history knows about the, the big-name fascists, the Oswald Mosleys and people like that. What I found were three plots by 
much less well-known names, but which were actually really, truly dangerous. These were conspiracies to overthrow the British government at the time when it was facing, Britain was facing invasion by the German army. And my, the, the most fascinating, I think, is the least known. It's a man called Lee Vaughan Henry, who today no one has ever heard of. There is only one photograph of this man in existence. But in the, in the 1930s, he was quite famous as a, as a conductor, as a, a musicologist, as an author, and who had conducted concerts for the British royal family, was on the, on the radio a lot. In secret, he'd set up an organization to bring about a fascist coup on behalf of the Third Reich. It's, it's, it's extraordinary reading the documents which talk about his coup, his coup plot, because they're utterly explicit. MI5 agents inside his organization, undercover agents, quote him talking about bumping people off. They describe him boasting to his followers, and he says he had 18 cells of 25 members each. That's just the hardcore of his organization, who were organized and who had created false um, mechanisms and acquired the paper for creating false identity documents. He was acquiring thousands of weapons in terms uh, of big, big number, big caliber. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The rifles ammunition and he was absolutely explicit what we're going to do he told his followers is once the germans land we're going out we're going to we're going to bump off the opposition and we're going to set up a puppet regime on behalf of hitler it's it's extraordinary reading these documents because no one has heard of this all right i i understand that these people were motivated by their fascism but unless there are germans on board with the the thousand-year Reich and the the rise of Aryan nation. Why, why are they fascists on the side of the Third Reich? What what kind of dog? What kind of pony do they have in the race? Why are they? Why do they take that side? Well, I mean, exactly. Why are they? Why are they taking the side of their own country's enemy, the country which their country is at war with? It's you know, it's a. It's a shocking question. The answer is that throughout the 1930s, particularly in the middle and upper classes of British society, fascism became very, very, very popular. And within the aristocracy and what you might call the ruling class, to give it its old-fashioned term, in England, there was a fervent admiration for Hitler these people, the leaders of these groups and the coup plots, went back and forth between Britain and Germany in the 1930s, were personal guests of Hitler in many cases at his birthday celebrations and at his military parades. They 
adopted and swallowed whole, wholeheartedly Nazi fascism. They thought it was a great idea. They, they hated Jews. That didn't harm how they saw the world. And they fervently believed that Britain needed fascism, but beyond that, that it needed Hitler or a Hitler-like figure to rule the country. Interesting. How, how many of them were on board because they just thought that Hitler was going to win and they wanted to be on the winning side? There are a couple of those. Um, there are a couple of files which, they're, they're thin files, there's not much in them. But what, what's interesting about those files is that although what they do, these people who are opportunists think, well, Hitler's going to win, I'll get, my, I'll get myself some points in early, they carry out sabotage, little bits of sabotage. They cut military phone wires. They try and steal plans for tanks or whatever. But what's noticeable about them is that these are the foot soldiers of the movement. These aren't the movers and shakers. These aren't the leaders. These aren't the well-connected fascists. These are really pretty ignorant people who just see an opportunity. And what the other thing that's noticeable is they get caught very quickly and they get punished very harshly. It's, well, it's a good thing and maybe even surprising that these spy rings did not uncover the plans for D-Day. Yeah, it's a very good thing. Um, it, it's not just D-Day. One of the, the, the efforts that MI5 did, we talked about at the start of this, was to set up its own bogus sting, op its own sting operation, whereby it set up one of its officers as a notional Gestapo agent. What he did was to draw in all these British fascists, hundreds of them, disaffected British fascists, pro-Nazi fascists, who were trying to send secrets, military secrets, to Germany, and thought, oh, here's a Gestapo officer working in Britain, we'll do it that way. What the files show is that had they succeeded, some of the most important military secrets of the time, which were vital to the lead up to D-Day, would have been betrayed to Germany. So, Tim, you, uh, I guess, first, you're born in Calcutta, is that correct? Yeah, I was born in, in Calcutta, India, a long time ago. What was the situation that you started out there? How did that happen? My my dad was working um, out there in a, a big import-export firm, and both I, my, I and my brother uh, were born while he and my mum were living there. It's no great mystery, but I have to say that um, we came back to England when I was two, and although I've been lucky enough through with work to travel quite literally all around the world, I've never, ever been back to India. Oh, I was going to ask you if you've been back. I expected you had, and I was going to have you tell me what it's like. <laughs> so, I wish I could. It, I, feel, I feel something of a failure because I've never been back to my birthplace. I have literally traveled the, the globe, but never been back to my birthplace. And you have 16 books, 16, three of them bestsellers. Talk about some of your favorite books. Um, I've been, I mean, I should say I've been really lucky. I've been writing books for 30 years, mostly in and amongst making documentary films, which I was also lucky to be, to be allowed to do. Um, but book book writing is is a real treat, I and mean, I'm very lucky that publishers have commissioned me and said yes, you can write these books. Um, 
I'm obviously proud of Hitler's secret army. Before that, I wrote a book, and it's, I guess, relevant now because of the what's going on, um, about the secret history of women's football, which is an extraordinary story, dating back to the the late 19th century of the efforts of really, really brave pioneering women to be allowed to play football and to set up competitions and how these were suppressed by the authorities um, in Britain. It's, it, it's really quite a story. And, you know, since the Women's World Cup is going on and the USA is doing well, England's doing well, it's, I think it's wonderful to see these women now being able, being recognized for what they do 100, 150 years after their pioneering forebears fought, literally fought, to be allowed to play the game. So you went to law school for a while, and I guess that's because it seemed like the thing to do, and you didn't like it, and you left. Yeah, I, I graduated uh, with a degree in theology. I'd say I did theology only because I was too stupid to do anything else, and that's all they'd let me do. Um, I'm glad I did, but after that, I went to law school. I guess I thought, that's what you do. You're a middle-class kid. You go and become a lawyer, and I spent six months there and hated it, um, and literally walked out one day and said, I'm going to be a journalist. That's what I want to do. It must um, have been an I, event, a moment that caused you to walk out that door. Yeah, it, <laughs> it was a movie, oddly enough. Um, I saw All the President's Men, and it's, it's a classic. It's almost a cliche for people of my generation. I saw All the President's Men, the film about the war... Woodward and Bernstein and the Watergate investigation, and I just knew. I knew that's what I wanted to do. Wow. So at the time, you were fortunate because uh, you could sort of learn on the job. You could you could get involved with, an, with a, a paper or an organization, and they would teach you from the ground up. Yeah, great days. In those days, in the late 70s and onwards, British journalism was was a healthy thing, a robust thing, and new journalists, cubs, cub reporters like me, they trained us. You know, they trained us for months at a time, on the job, and also sent you away to college to learn the law and the basics of it. And it was very good. I started on local weekly newspapers. I then went to... Um, regional daily newspapers and then went into radio and then television did yeah the did you do the radio and television concurrently or was it one after the other no it was one after the other i start in those days been in the early 80s the bbc ran a an investigative radio show it was it was great it was a it was a wonderful playground and also a fantastic place to learn a bit more of my trade and i worked there for three years and it was so successful that we were essentially bought by a commercial television company to say, well, turn this into television, please. And you did a film on the American liver transplant industry, something, that, something I know very little about. What can you tell me about the film and the liver transplant industry? That was a film that um, was commissioned by and made for Discovery, a one-hour documentary back in the 90s. Um, and like you I, you, I knew very little about liver transplants and how it works. And it was the most extraordinary insight into 
the genius, I think that, don't think that's too strong a word, the genius of the surgeons who have pioneered this and the bravery, the heartbreaking bravery of the people who are waiting to receive new livers. So we followed surgeons and patients at hospitals in, in Pittsburgh and in uh, Oklahoma, which are two of the big centers, and told their stories and told the stories of the surgeons and followed them through the liver transplants when they finally got them. Thank God they did. You know, it was touch and go at some points whether they were going to get these Re- these new livers. Related to that, uh, I did see a film, and I think it had Clive Owen in it, about, was it India or England or Europe, where people get hit on the head and taken to a hotel room and have their liver extracted and sold to somebody else. Um, yeah, I haven't seen that film. I, and I have to say, my film was not a, was not an investigative film in that sense. So, I did. I, I know there have been um, allegations about um, organ stealing and organ, organ harvesting. I don't think they were the the allegations relate to the UK. I okay. think they ha- they claim that they happen in poorer countries than ours. But um, I should say, just since we're talking about liver liver transplants. For any of your listeners who don't know, and I'm sure many of you do, the actual operation is it? I mean, it's it's hours and hours and hours and hours. The surgeons have to come in in shifts to do this. It's wow. it, it's phenomenal. You know, we filmed this. I mean, we were shooting on film. I was lucky enough to shoot on film in those days, and you know, 10, 12, 14 hours we're filming this this operation. It's a phenomenal phenomenal thing that these surgeons are able to do and I I was truly privileged to meet both them and the people who were waiting and who finally got their new livers I'm sure that you have more books and maybe films in you and probably already working on the next thing I'm currently working on a (laughs) on an, an extraordinary spy story which I have to keep marginally quiet but um, it's based on thousands and thousands, again, of documents which I've prized out of the, Brit- uh, the British security services of the CIA and the FBI. And it's about one of the most important Cold War defectors who is the least understood and the most, his story is still largely secret. So I am working away on the research for that and hopefully with, I'll touch wood, knock on wood, that will come out in a, in a year and a half, two years time. Well... That is great, and uh, please, when as soon as it's done, or even if you get to a point where you want to talk about it, give us a shout and, and come on the program. Thank you so much. It was great. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. Tim Tate, wonderful book, Hitler's Secret Army, A Hidden History of Spies, Saboteurs, and Traitors. And it's great to have a person like Tim on, just a solid, interesting guy. Thank you so much. It's WBZ. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.